This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. I am delighted and excited today to have Dr. Michael Gorham and Dr. Emily Ventura with us today to talk about their new book, which is coming out tomorrow called Sugar Proof. Dr. Gorham is a professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, which is affiliated with the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. He is program director for diabetes and obesity at the Sabin Research Institute, and he holds the Dr. Robert C. and Veronica Atkins Endowed Chair in Childhood Obesity and Diabetes. He also serves as co-director of the USC Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute. Dr. Emily Ventura is a nutrition educator, public health advocate, writer, and cook. She did her BA in biology and society with an additional concentration in Latin American studies from Cornell University. She later went on to complete her master's in public health and doctorate of philosophy in preventative medicine at the University of Southern California. She has spent 10 years of research experience in public health with a focus on dietary strategies for the prevention of obesity, diabetes, and cancer. I can't think of two better people to have on this afternoon to really dive into this issue with sugar. And so you know, I know not only for myself as a mom, but I know as a clinician, as a nurse practitioner, that sugar has really shifted the health trajectory, not only of our children, but also of our entire nation. And I'd love for you to talk about, you know, how does sugar really impact mental, physical, and academic health of our children? I want to dive right in. I know I got a lot of feedback on social media, parents who are really looking for good information, they're concerned, they're scared. And obviously, you know, post-COVID or not post-COVID, during COVID, when children aren't able to be as physically active as they would like to be and certainly not be as engaged in sports as they would like to be, we're noticing this as becoming an increasing problem. Yeah, well, that's a great, great chance to jump in. That's a big question. And in the book we cover, the first half of the book is all about the science Mm -hmm. um, of how sugar affects children literally from head to toe through a variety of different mechanisms. Some of those are well-known, like tooth decay or weight gain, but also we talk about some of the what we call silent effects that you might not be aware of because it's the slow progression of chronic disease that starts in childhood, might even start, does start in fact in the womb, and that is seeding long-term risk for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, liver disease, etc. So, and then there's the whole aspect of learning, focus, concentration, emotional well-being. Those might be more obvious to some parents who have seen, you know, rapid mood swings of children. And it's debatable, debatable as to whether that's due to sugar. And in the book, we argue that it is. And there's one way to find out, and that is to take your kids off sugar for a day or two. It'll be a struggle for the first day or two, but then... Uh, in our experience, you'll see visible differences in temperament. Studies also show links between excess sugar consumption and academic performance, and that goes from early childhood through teenage years, measuring academic scores as a function of typical dietary intakes. Uh, But we could talk for hours really about some of the other effects, like I mentioned, on 
diabetes, heart disease, liver disease. So that's happened rare, sometimes, unfortunately, in children, but more often than not, it's kind of a long-term chronic development of those conditions. And then there's the whole inflammatory side of things. The sugar invokes inflammatory responses systemically, and that could manifest as poor skin, like in acne or asthma. These conditions also have been associated with high sugar consumption. I think one of the really important points that you mentioned was that this starts in utero. So this means that when a woman is pregnant, they can be sensitizing their fetus to the impact of sugar. And much like you know, babies that were born, you know, I trained during the the crack years, the crack addiction years in inner city Baltimore, I would imagine that, you know, babies are being delivered that are probably sugar addicted, much like, you know, some of the side effects that we see from illicit drug use. And so is there a tipping point, meaning it's impossible not to consume any sugar, but for people that are listening, that are maybe thinking about becoming pregnant or are pregnant presently and currently, are there things that they can be doing to lessen the impact of sugar consumption on their fetus? Yeah, this is a good point. And this developmental effect extends also through lactation, mm -hmm. through transmission of sugar from the mother to the infant. In fact, an original version of the book was called Secondhand Sugars, which is a, mm -hmm. a term that we coined, which talks about the inadvertent exposure of sugar to the developing fetus or the developing infant, whether that's across the um, umbilical cord into the fetus or through breast milk. We don't know really, to answer your question, in terms of thresholds, there's, I couldn't tell you exactly what that threshold is, but certainly if you can, you'll benefit from reducing sugar consumption during pregnancy. And of course, this is a very difficult time for moms yeah. to be adjusting nutrition. So nowhere in the book are we telling anybody to give up sugar except on our seven-day challenge, which is a temporary thing. But we tried to find the right balance between cutting down on sugar, especially if you have high levels of consumption, mm -hmm. and finding a manageable level to basically take control over your relationship with sugar and get out of the addictive cravings that often exist. Well, I think that's such a good point. I think even being aware of the fact that our consumption of sugar can be problematic while we're breastfeeding or pregnant and then, you know, lessening the likelihood that your child is going to be craving those foods. So let's pivot a little bit. Why is it that the impact of sugar is so much more profound on children than it is in adults? Is that a byproduct of the fact that obviously they're not smaller adults, but they themselves, their bodies are so much more compact, they're growing, they're developing in their growing. I was going to bounce this question to Emily, but this is my favorite question. So <laughs> do you mind if I take this one as well? Yeah, but, um, please do. If possible, I had something else to say about pregnancy because I thought that was yes. such an interesting topic and I have two boys, my own. Yeah, we talk, this to me was a tipping point for me and my inspiration to write this book through my research, discovering that when I realized through my own research, the number of ways in which children could be more vulnerable to the effects of sugar than adults, it was really a wake-up call for me. And it's a very interesting situation because we're actually, from an evolutionary perspective, we're born with an innate preference for sweetness. Mm -hmm. So, And that's basically to help infants promote suckling and breastfeeding because breast milk is sweet. 
and to avoid inadvertent consumption of toxic foods from the forest floor. That was the evolutionary setup. But now, of course, we're living in a completely different environment and the, the food environment is full of sugar, 70% of processed foods, 80% of snacks for children targeted to children are full of sugar and different types of sugar. So why is this particularly a problem for children? That's because, like you say, it's more than just they're small adults. They're building, their brains are being built, mm-hmm. their livers are being built, all of the organs of, this, of, of their body are being built, and studies have shown that that process of building is, can be very much influenced by even small levels of different nutrients, even to down to the level of cell development. So when your body's developing, you have stem cells, and stem cells decide whether or not they're going to become a bone cell, a brain cell, or a fat cell. That diversion of cellular fate can be directed by even low levels of fructose, I imagine we're going to talk a lot more about fructose, which is the sugar from fruit. And again, I'm not saying that eating fruit is bad. That's definitely not a bad thing. But there's just so much fructose in our food environment now beyond high fructose corn syrup that you mentioned earlier. That's kind of the notorious villainous sugar. But now lots of different new sugars are emerging that are used in kids' foods, fruit juice concentrates and fruit-based sugars. And fructose is very problematic from a developmental perspective, whether that's fat cells, which can be targeted. So, so fat cells, when they're developing, if they're exposed to fructose, they will become, they will predetermine, they're predestined to become fat cells. They'll change, they'll change their destiny, basically, based on levels of concentration that they're exposed to. And Infants are rapidly building fat cells, much more rapidly than you and I. So we have to look at this through the lens of of development. Another classic example that's very tangible is tooth decay. Why are children more vulnerable to tooth decay than adults? And that's because of the nature of tooth development. Uh, Teeth aren't born with all the enamel. That enamel development continues in early life. Enamel protects the teeth from the acid that are produced by the bacteria that eat on the sugar. And in addition, infants have more bouts of eating, sucking, chewing, more bouts of feeding throughout the day. So there's more chance of sugar being stuck on the teeth that the bacteria feed on, and the teeth just aren't ready to be protected from all that acid. That's just one one very clear, tangible example, but there's other examples, whether you're talking about the brain or the liver or the heart, that makes them more susceptible to high levels of sugar. I think that's really important for people to understand that the impact of sugar is not just about weight gain. It's not just about fat gain. It is a systemic inflammatory cascade that impacts every single organ in the body. And when we really think about, or at least I think about as a parent, it concerns me greatly when we start talking about interrupting proper brain development or hyperactivity which oftentimes can be directly correlated with, you know, nutritional patterns. And children, unlike adults, don't have the ability to go grocery shopping for themselves. They're largely dependent on the choices and the purchases made by their parents. So I love that you're trying to change the narrative and to try to make people more aware. And I think it's also unfortunate that we live in a time where we have to qualify our answers and say, listen, I'm not saying fruit is bad, or I'm not saying you have to eliminate all these things, but let's just have the narrative shift 
so that we can be, you know, kind of in a position where we're educating and inspiring people to make different changes because small changes have a tremendous impact on our health. It's so true. And I think, you know, going back to the topic of shifts in our food supply in terms of different types of sweeteners, we Mm -hmm. have seen so much more fructose now Mm -hmm. with all the sweetened beverages and also these alternative sweeteners that are being used, including fruit juice concentrates, which are marketed as healthy sweeteners because they come from fruit. But actually what we found is those high concentrations of fructose can be damaging and that starts way back even in utero. So what Michael has found in his research and other colleagues of his is that the fructose that a woman ingests while pregnant can actually be transferred to her baby in utero and then also through breast milk. And fructose is not a sugar that's typically found in breast milk. And so infants are really unable to handle that fructose load as are young children. And even as adults, it's just too much fructose, mm-hmm. which ends up you know, being converted to fat in the liver. But you know, there are, like you said, very small shifts that you can make. So once you know that, it's empowering because, you know, when you're pregnant, of course, we all understand, I understand you have cravings. Sometimes they're completely come as a surprise. And I remember when I was pregnant with my first child, I wanted a milkshake and I wanted orange juice. And those are things that I just really typically don't gravitate toward at all. But, you know, making small shifts like saying, okay, instead of that orange juice, I'm going to have a whole orange because it comes with the fiber that is protective and helps slow down the absorption of fructose. And, you know, also just awareness about some of the alternatives that are on the market now, like all the low calorie sweeteners Mm -hmm. that might seem like a good alternative, even in pregnancy. And, you know, those can also be harmful and those can also be transmitted to the baby and have some effects on kids that we know enough to know that we're not comfortable recommending them. But once again, it's just about kind of understanding what some of the issues are with our foods and our food supply and making simple changes. And that's such a good point. I think that, you know, with a little bit of information, people can start to make those small, subtle changes. But I'd love to pivot a little bit and let's talk. We've used the term fructose. We've talked about high fructose corn syrup. But what are the differentiators between sucrose, which is what most people are thinking about when they think about sugar per se, and fructose? Like what makes these, what are the differentiators? What makes them different? Why should we be more concerned about fructose? What makes it unique? Love this question. So, and it's, it goes, goes back to the chemistry of sugars. And we talk about this in a lot of detail to try and break that down and decode the difference between sugar, which by the way, has over 200 different varieties or names right now, but the basic building blocks. So, so sucrose are the, or, the ordinary typical white crystalline sugar that most people buy in bags and use in the kitchen. That's sucrose and sucrose is a disaccharide that's two smaller sugars joined together. And those two smaller sugars are glucose and fructose. Those are both monosaccharide sugars joined together in sucrose. They're chemically identical, but they have very different properties in the body. Glucose is used all over the body in every cell of the body for energy. So when you ingest sugar or starch that's broken down, just the glucose, that glucose is used everywhere for energy. Fructose, on the other hand, is not directly used for energy. It can, some of it can be converted to glucose and used for energy. But particularly under excess conditions, when you're consuming a lot of sugar, most of that fructose, well, as soon as you digest it, it 
is broken apart and the glucose gets absorbed and is used for energy throughout the body. The fructose is taken up by the liver almost exclusively where it's converted into fat and that fat can get stuck in the liver and cause fatty liver disease, very dangerous problem that's highly increasing in prevalence in the population, children and adults. Or it can be transported back out into the circulation as lipids, fat, and that's where we get the link between sugar and heart disease Mm -hmm. because we're contributing to lipidemia and uric acid production, which is inflammatory. So it's not, and both those glucose and the fructose, they're both chemically identical. If you burnt them in a test tube, they would both yield four calories per gram. So it's, this is not to do with calories anymore. Mm-hmm. This is purely to do with the metabolic fate of those two molecules that are chemically identical, but handled in the body in very, very different ways. And the more excess fructose that you consume, the more likely it is that you're going to push it through those adverse pathways in the liver. When you're consuming small amounts, and studies have shown this, under conditions of small amounts of sugar, some of that fructose is converted, and it's to do with how much, not only how much you consume, but how rapidly it's absorbed. Mm -hmm. And that's another reason why eating fruit is okay, because it's not as much fructose as a glass of juice. So a glass of apple juice, for example, might have the fructose of three or four apples, but nobody's eating four apples all at once. We typically just eat one apple slowly. And when you eat an apple, it's digested very slowly. You have all the fiber in there. And so it's released very slowly. So it's a built-in mechanism of protection where that fructose is released very slowly. And you don't get that buildup of fat in the liver from it. More of it is used for energy. Whereas if you drink a glass of apple juice massive dose of highly concentrated fructose that basically overwhelms the liver. Interesting. A few years ago, the Washington Post did an expose talking about Appalachia and talking about the rates of tooth decay in children. And a lot of parents were using things like Mountain Dew in their babies or their infants' bottles. And this was contributing to this you know, tooth decay. But I think most people assume that fructose in processed foods is pretty benign or they're just not aware of it. And so I was reading, I believe it was in the 1970s, that's when a lot of the processed food industry really started to make this shift away from sucrose over to high fructose corn syrup, which, and I'm not a chemist, from what I understand is a very complicated multi-step process to create high fructose corn syrup, which is very shelf-stable, meaning that it doesn't tend to rot and is proliferative in the processed food industry, largely because of subsidies from the federal government. So people on the podcast hear me talk about this a lot. You know, anything that's subsidized by the federal government is going to be found in proliferation in the processed food industry. And, and certainly this is no different. But I'd love for you to kind of touch on what is high fructose corn syrup? How is it different than, you know, fruit sugar fructose? And why do we need to be so concerned about this? Yeah, so high fructose corn syrup is made from corn. Corn is a starch, which is all glucose. So Mm -hmm. corn syrup is a glucose-based syrup, which has its, you know, separate issues, but there's no fructose in corn syrup. Mm -hmm. And then scientists discovered how to convert some of that glucose into fructose. So it's a chemical conversion 
where they take the corn syrup and convert some of the glucose into fructose and then create high fructose corn syrup. It's a bit debatable as to how much fructose is in that. And I have had run-ins with the food industry trying, and we've done studies where we've measured the fructose content of different beverages made with high fructose corn syrup. Our studies show that you adjust the ratio much higher than the industry says. We think that most beverages have about 60% fructose. The industry says 55. It sounds trivial, but it's not because the more you tip that balance towards. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mycosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including 
including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armrest Colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Fructose, the more likely you're going to get the negative consequences. And then you might be wondering, why does the food industry go through all that bother? And the reason is because that chemical conversion of a hexagonal glucose molecule to a fructose molecule, they're chemically identical, remember. The only difference is fructose is shaped like a pentagon and glucose is shaped like a hexagon. Why does that matter? That matters in the body because fructose is twice as sweet as glucose. That's a big deal for the food industry because now they can use half as much and get just as much sweetness. So it, it saves them a lot of money. And they can make sweeter things or have more shelf life, like you mentioned. But the more we do that, the more we're tipping towards fructose. And now, as Emily mentioned, this goes beyond high fructose corn syrup, which has a very bad reputation, a bad name. But fruit sugar, concentrated apple juice, puree, organic, or whatever you want to call it, it's just the sugar from an apple purified and concentrated. And that's even higher in fructose. I mean, apples are about 70%, 75% fructose. So if you concentrate the sugar out of apple juice, now you have a sugar that is even higher in fructose, but it's got a much healthier sounding name than high fructose corn syrup, yet it's just as bad because it's, or even worse, possibly because it's more fructose. And also adding to that list, agave syrup, which is marketed as something that's healthy and a good natural alternative, but can be as much as 90% fructose in composition. Did we lose did we lose you? I don't know about that. I was like, that's never happened before. I was like, what just happened? Uh, so that might have been on my end. I have a dedicated line into the wall. I'm not sure what happened, but my team will kind of put that all back together. I know we were touching on fructose. Let's kind of pivot. I do think agave syrup is worth mentioning because there are so many people that believe it is a benign entity in comparison to a lot of other sugar alternatives. So I'd love for you to talk about that, Emily. Yeah. So, you know, there's all these different sugars that fall into the more unrefined category and so many recipes that are online that rely on those. So, you know, they're advertised as refined sugar-free, but they have honey or they have maple syrup or they have agave syrup. And going back to the fructose discussion, agave syrup is actually one of the highest sources of fructose in terms of the sweeteners can be up to 90% fructose. So we really don't recommend that as an alternative. And, you know, the other, you know, honey and maple syrup, which we get these questions quite often, you know, what we suggest is in our, all of our recipes, we don't use those. We consider them to still fall in the added sugar category. In moderation, you know, if you want to use some of those at home and baking, that's fine. But, you know, you just kind of still need to be aware that those are still added sugars. And just because something is 
unrefined or less refined doesn't mean that it's not a source of, of sugar. I think that's an important distinction, largely because, you know, I hear people say to me, oh, well, I just used honey in place of this, or I just used dates or, you know, whatever it is. I said, it's still a sugar. So you have to recognize it as such. And I think it's even more critical for us to recognize how sensitized our palates have gotten to so many of these sweeteners. And, you know, I always think it's important to talk about you know, where are the hidden sources of sugar? And obviously we all know the answers to this, but I would love Emily for you to kind of touch on this. What are some of the more surprising places that we will find sugars that are disguised? You know, it's the sugar by any other name. They've got, you know, hundreds of variations to make it more challenging for people when they're looking at food labels, because oftentimes it doesn't just say sugar, it may just say dextrose, or it's kind of designed to kind of you know, it's like playing smoke and mirrors, like they have to acknowledge what's in there, but they try to change the name so that it's not as apparent. It's so true. And crafty marketing is just an issue all the way from mm-hmm. foods for weaning all the way up through foods that are marketed to teens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at some of the baby foods, even it might be a fruit puree or something like a baby smoothie that mm-hmm. includes, it's in a pouch and it includes some yogurt. But then if you look at the ingredient list is full of fruit juice concentrates. Mm-hmm. And those may not even be reflected on the added sugar content that's shown on the food label. So you really do also have to look at the ingredient label or the ingredient list to think about what's in those foods. Things like rice cakes that are sweetened, you know, apple flavor rice cakes are sprayed with fruit juice concentrate or, you know, healthy seeming yogurt that is actually full of, you know, not just fruit puree, but fruit juice concentrate as well. And then, you know, some of the just classic products that, you know, I grew up with them too, like granola bars. If you actually think about how much sugar are in those compared to what's now recommended for kids for sugar for the day, if you eat one granola bar, depending on your age, that could be your added sugar for the entire day. And that's not to count, you know, the cereal that may have been at breakfast Mm -hmm. that also has some added sugar or along with juice, or maybe also along with the granola bar and the lunch, there may also be a yogurt or some fruit snacks or whatever else is handed out at school or after school. And so it's just really easy for things to sort of, you know, to add up. And the point that we make in Sugar Proof is not to deprive our children because, you know, we understand that sweet treats are part of celebrating, part of life, part of childhood, but just rethinking the staple foods. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how can you make sure that your kids aren't accidentally exceeding their sugar limits at breakfast alone? It's a big topic. Well, I think in so many ways, a lot of the things that you touch on, whether it's cereal or yogurt or granola bars, or even protein bars, which I like to refer to as a carbohydrate bar, because generally there's not a lot of protein, there's a lot of sugars in them, is that it's like a variation of dessert. And so, you know, we're not keeping our blood sugar stable, we're contributing to being sugar burners, where, you know, we get this spike in insulin throughout the day, because we're eating constantly, because we just aren't providing our body with the proper macronutrients. Mm -hmm. But I would love for you to touch on either you or Michael, you know, it was interesting in the book and I showed my 15 year old who was kind of horrified when we talked about this, you know, what are the limits of sugar? And I know you have a really nice kind of algorithm that shows, you know, based on gender and age, you know, what are the limits? So I have a 12 year old. And so his limits were six teaspoons a day, which sounds like a lot, but it's not. 
and the 15 year old, it was seven and a quarter teaspoons a day. And so when I explained to them, that's like less than a granola bar or less than a lot of these other things, I said, and that's like, ideally the direction we should go in. That's actually better than what the world health organization had kind of stipulated in terms of limits, but I'd love for you to kind of touch on the limits piece. And, you know, if we're eating a, you know, kind of a standard American diet, obviously that's probably a hundred or 200 grams of sugar a day. I'd love for you to kind of touch on like how people can kind of ratchet back or how they can work towards that as a goal or getting closer to that goal as being something that's realistic for them and their families. Definitely. And when we talk with families, the first thing that we like to talk about is beverages. Because if you were to have a can of Coke, for example, you'd be having about 10 teaspoons of sugar. Mm-hmm. So you're, no matter what age you are as a child, that's exceeding mm-hmm. the recommendations. That or, we or a glass have. of juice. Or a glass yeah. of juice, which, yeah. So beverages are, you know, a big thing. And then especially with teens now, you know, that it's like a cool thing to go get a frappuccino or maybe yeah. an energy drink. And those products are so high in sugar and then also come along with caffeine that sort of, you know, adds a double whammy to the equation. So really rethinking what you drink is a huge one. Mm -hmm. And then the second place that we like to look at is breakfast. Mm -hmm. And something I've been thinking a lot about recently as my children are now home doing distance learning, and I know a lot of other families are in that situation as well, is that we're now with our children more in the mornings, a lot of us. And we kind of see how different breakfasts impact children. So sometimes parents, you know, in the normal situation might be giving their kids breakfast and sending them off to school and they don't really see what's happening at 9 or 10 a.m. when they experience that crash. And we have a story in Sugar Proof where one of the moms received an email from a a science teacher for 14-year-old saying, you know, I'm not really sure why, but your daughter's falling asleep in class every day. And they couldn't quite figure it out. They tried an earlier bedtime. They tried reducing screen time at night so that she'd sleep better. And what they ended up finding was it was breakfast. So she was having Honey Nut Cheerios in the morning along with a glass of juice. And then she was also having two different types of vitamins, a calcium chew and a gummy multivitamin. And that was really just, it was such a big sugar load that Mm -hmm. she had a lot of energy when she left the door. But, you know, second period science class, she was crashing, falling asleep every day. So... We definitely recommend taking a look at breakfast and seeing how you can reduce sugar there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think really focusing in on, you know, protein and healthy fats is a good start. I mean, I know that's, you know, the processed food industry, Kellogg's would prefer that we're still giving our kids, you know, oatmeal and lots of cereal. But when you kind of pivot and transition to something like eggs and bacon, your child's going to be satiated and fuller longer than if they're sitting down with a big glass of orange juice and a bowl of, you know, gosh, sugar sweetened frosted flakes. I don't mean to be calling them out. I'm just trying to think of a really sugary uh, kind of breakfast, which is really like dessert. I mean, that's what I keep reminding people. I'm like, dessert is something that we stress as a you know, from a functional place, that's something we should not be consuming regularly, but yet we're giving our kids dessert every single day for breakfast and not realizing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Study, you know, it's an interesting study that was very, very interesting findings where they gave children, they took children at a camp and they separated them into two groups. One group got high sugar cereals, like you just mentioned, and the other group were randomized to receive lower sugar cereals, less than I think it was three or four grams per serving as opposed to 10 or more. And they gave them the choice of um, adding 
a natural sweetness with mm-hmm. berries or chopped fruit on top. And what they found was that children were perfectly happy with the low sugar varieties, and they ended up serving themselves less of it and adding more fun toppings. Mm-hmm. So overall, they ate less sugar and increased the nutrient quality of breakfast. So even if cereal is popular in your house, you can still make an adjustment and radically improve the nutritional quality by choosing a lower sugar variety that has more fiber and then having kids, uh, giving them the the option of adding berries, blueberries, cut fruit or whatever on top. So kids are resilient. There's not stuck with whatever it is that they demand because they like the look of the box at the grocery store. Absolutely. And I love that, you know, you're providing options saying if you choose to go this direction, whether it's oatmeal or cereal shoot for higher fiber, less sugar, add some fun things in there, get them involved in the kitchen. Do you have any specific tips for parents of teenagers or, you know, older children? Because it's very easy. And I say this with love and reverence because my kids have grown up eating pretty healthy it was very easy when they were two and four, when they didn't know this whole other world existed. But now that they're teenagers, it's a completely different ball game. And I've come to find that now I let them make choices that I wouldn't otherwise have done a few years ago. And then they come home and they're like sick to their stomachs. They don't feel good. It helps reinforce why they shouldn't eat that way. But what would be some of the things you would suggest for older children or teenagers, even people that are dealing with peer pressure? Because I think there are always well-meaning people out in the community that, you know, I always call them the sugar pushers, but they just keep saying, oh, well, you know, why don't you try this cake or why don't have the ice cream? And I always say moderation, not deprivation, which I think is the same kind of philosophy that you both have, which I think is a very healthy way to think about things. But how do you recommend people kind of navigating those issues? Yeah, that's a great question. We, so I have two teenage girls too, 14 and about to be 18, can't believe it. Wow. Emily's got two young boys, so she's about to kind of discover this world of what happens when your Mm -hmm. kids get a bit older. And yeah, I saw it happening pretty clearly. And, you know, we like to think we can raise kids if we're we're talking to them younger, that they can learn to become self-regulators. But of course, Mm -hmm. if you've already got teenagers, that may not be be the case. I think modeling is important Mm -hmm. in that situation what you eat at home, they're, they're still dependent on what you bring into the house mm-hmm. as a parent. Uh, so you still have that control. So for example, one, one big tip is if you're struggling with juice or soda at home, and especially now since kids are home a lot more, is just don't buy it. It's okay for a treat outside of the house. Uh, if they're going to a party or out with friends to the mall or the coffee shop, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But at least you can control what's in the house and we make in our house. Water is the default choice at mealtime. So we have cold bottles of water in our fridge that come out for lunch and dinner. And that's what we drink at mealtimes. Sure, there may be a special occasion if it's, you know, if they have a friend over or somebody's birthday or whatever. I'm not, this is not like regimented, but you have to kind of shift the defaults. Mm-hmm. And you can do that by deciding what you put out in your environment, the environment of your house and your kitchen and the way what you have, even what you have out on the shelves. If you have a big box of cereal out on the shelves, then kids will come down to breakfast and just pour themselves some cereal. Typically, if they're self-serving, they'll self-serve more. So just what you put out, what you leave around can be important. There's lots of kind of subtle different things you can introduce them to that kind of can nudge them a little bit towards less sugar. 
pancakes at the weekend or waffles or French toast are fine. But again, there's ways to do that that doesn't involve drowning it with syrup or sugar. There's fun ways to enjoy those fun breakfasts with less sugar. Oh, I love I also talked in the book about internal motivation and coming from the technique called motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. It's used a lot in counseling and it helps parents kind of develop a framework for how to talk with children that doesn't come across as a top-down approach, but rather coming alongside approach and helping kids to talk through how they feel like you said about your kids, how they feel when they make different food choices, and then also what might be some of their motivations to make shifts in those choices. And something that's really great about this age too is that kids can really cook a full recipe from start to finish. And whether it's using one of the recipes that's in our book or maybe finding something online that appeals to them, they can really take charge and take ownership. And with that comes kind of a pride that, oh, I made this. This is really good. This is something I like. And we've seen that with the families that we've worked with. So one of them that I'm thinking about in particular, one of the teenage daughters started to like making our muffins. And so they'd make the apple plum muffins. And she has three younger siblings. And surprisingly, all the kids liked the muffins, which the mom that we were working with said, this never happens. You know, usually we'll make a recipe and it's a healthy recipe and either none of us like it, or maybe one of us likes it, but they all liked it. And the oldest daughter was kind of became in charge of making those and involving some of the younger siblings. And she, that also inspired her to make some other changes, like choosing different after-school snacks that she discovered made her feel better and she could finish her homework in a shorter amount of time so she could hang out with her friends. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. 
WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Oh, I love that. Empowering yeah. kids to that they're taking an active role in what they're doing. Both my kids love to cook out of necessity because we got to a point with them, they eat so often, they're athletes that it got to a point where we couldn't just be making, you know, multiple meals throughout the day. We lose our sanity. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I got from several parents was the, and it's important to talk about this, that many of their children are dealing with a lot of carbohydrate cravings, sugar cravings, and then the resultant weight gain. You know, we kind of touched on in the very beginning that with social distancing and this kind of evolving COVID culture that many of us are dealing with, our children aren't able to be as physically active. I have one kiddo who's a swimmer who was out of the pool for three months and was swimming 12 hours a week, very competitively, who went to not swimming at all. And that was really challenging for him. But I think, you know, the other pieces is certainly with preteens and teenagers and adults, you know, there can be this emotional component, you know, this self-soothing that you can kind of see, you know, what do you recommend for parents that are noticing that they're children are putting on a little bit of weight, maybe they've been more physically active, aren't able to be as physically active, what would the recommendations be from your perspective about how to limit some of the sugary foods that they're consuming? Obviously, we know purchasing power by parents is paramount. But just in terms of having an ongoing discussion with your child without wanting to, you know, make them paranoid or feel like they're being shamed because of some of the choices that they're making. It's a tough one. And I think, you know, there's a lot of different emotions going on with the pandemic. You know, there's definitely a low level of anxiety that a lot of people are feeling and high level of anxiety too. Boredom is another trigger for eating. And also, you know, like you said, just change in routines. And so I think having foods around the house that will make for more nutrient-dense snacks is a big one. And also kind of thinking of snacks as being like more of like a mini meal rather than just, you know, opening a bag of chips or cookies or whatever it is and snacking on those. Thinking, okay, you know, let's actually make a little plate and think about what's on that and have it be like almost like more of like a little mini meal more Mm -hmm. thought out that helps and 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard time. And I know a lot of, of families have kind of turned into more of the comfort foods. Mm-hmm. And we're all for comfort foods. And I mean, there's a way to do that without them being, you know, things that you know, sabotage your health, mm-hmm. um, especially as this wears on and on and on. I think a lot of families are looking for different recipes that sort of still give that comfort feel, but are good for you at the same time. And we have a lot of those type recipes in our book things that you can bake as a family or make as a quick treat that are still relatively very healthy for you. And like Emily mentioned, I think the intrinsic motivation is really important. Mm -hmm. Finding ways to talk to your teens or kids about what their internal motivations are, not using external rewards like money or prizes Mm -hmm. or definitely not food. That's just not going to work in the long run. So we have to think about what is working in the long run, and that is getting kids internally motivated about what's going to make them feel better, perform better at school or in the swim pool or on track or make their skin look better or whatever that motivation might be. They'll have their own reasons. It's going to vary by age and gender and so on, and that's pretty important. We we just actually sat down with our 14-year-old yesterday and came up with a schedule, so think scheduling is important and schedule is thrown off for everybody right now and just talk to her about you know what day these are the days of the week you've got your dance class on this day what's going to happen on Tuesdays you want to go on a walk do you want to do your class in your room what what is it you want to do and we try to help her come up with a schedule I love it's a great idea Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. I mean, I have a swimmer. I have one that plays football. I used to do CrossFit. The CrossFit gym closed during COVID. And I think that, you know, helping our children kind of navigate, giving them options, you know, helping them stay organized. You know, here in Washington, D.C., our kids will go back to school a little late, you know, given the social distancing piece and 100% distance learning. And I made it very clear to my kids, you're going to have some type of physical activity every day, much like when you were little people. Now they're taller than me. But I think it's really important that we're talking about, you know, food choices, you mentioned, you know, motivational interviewing, but also, you know, giving them options, much like we did when they were younger. It's like, you can do this or you can do this, but, you know, not being physically active is a non-negotiable, making sure they're getting plenty of sleep, making sure if they're, you know, if they have underlying anxiety or depression, or they're just feeling out of sorts that you're getting the support that they need, because all of that is so critical for success. Now, I want to be mindful of your time, but I would love for you to provide, you know, perhaps some, you know, I know you mentioned some, that there are lots of great sugar-proof recipes, but if you're thinking of things that they're in the grocery store and they're trying to kind of navigate picking up snacks or things that are a little bit more healthy, are there some, you know, things that work well in your home that you're willing to share? I always tell people in my home, it's usually gravitating towards like jerky, you know, non-sugar jerky, you know, grass-fed jerky, or, you know, doing like a tart apple, you know, I always usually try to persuade them or, you know, an orange, but they have to peel it. So it takes a little bit of time. So there's not this instant gratification, you know, that they get from some of the other processed foods that are out there. Those are great ideas. My kids like a lot of the recipes that are in sugar proof. I developed them along with my kids. So they were really instrumental in those. And some of the recipes also come from Michael's house and are things that um, he and his family enjoy as well. 
Speaking of spending a little bit more time eating, one of the things that my kids like are these frozen fruit popsicles Mm -hmm. from the book. And so all it is is just fruit that you put into the blender and then you Mm -hmm. freeze in popsicle molds. Mm -hmm. And compared to the typical popsicles that you might buy at the store that are full of juice or full Mm -hmm. of sugar or, you know, artificial sugars, Mm -hmm. it's just frozen fruit and they really enjoy those. And they'll just, you know, they'll spend a while eating it and maybe out in the garden. The roasted chickpea snacks from the book are a huge hit in my house. And surprisingly, my kids never really get tired of those. You can change around the seasonings. And right now, my kids really like to have garam masala on theirs. And it's just a really high fiber, nutrient dense snack that's mm-hmm. easy to make. Nuts, things like that mm-hmm. are always popular. Roasted almonds. So pretty with salt on it. Mm-hmm. Some of the things we have, you know, I mean, I'm the same when I'm working at home. I'm finding myself roaming around the kitchen, opening mm-hmm. the cupboards, opening the fridge, seeing what's available. So again, it comes back to the environment and what you mm-hmm. put out to make available so that the kids come down and open the fridge. They see you know, a glass container full of chopped fruit or chopped mm-hmm. veggies and a, find a hummus that they like. We had a big revolution in our house recently because we actually found a brand of hummus that everybody likes. Oh, good. And that was good. So we try to make sure there's chopped veggies around for that. Simple snack that we like is just sliced cucumbers with furikake. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know if you've ever used furikake. It's a Japanese seasoning with seaweed and salt and sesame seeds. So, it's also kind of nutrient-wise quite useful. And a tip that I talk about is kids love to dip and sprinkle. And mm-hmm. shape is important as well. They might want to cut it in different shapes. They like to sprinkle things on top. Furikake is good for that. I one snack in our house that people like, or just slice some cucumbers and put out a little bowl of furukake and kids love to dip in it and it gives it a great crunch and a great umami taste. Kids love that, adults love that. So trying to keep it simple yet nutritious so that kids just don't go for the usual defaults. And it, again, it comes back to making it readily available Mm-hmm. And finding well, and out what people like. is important. You know, you mentioned that children like textures and they like shapes and they like to dip things and they like to put things on their food. And I think adults are probably no different. It's just finding healthier alternatives. Before we stop today, I do want to ask one last question. And it's probably the question that I was asked the most on social media. And it was, what is the healthiest sugar to use? in baking and treats. And the reason why I ask this is that a lot of people are focused on monk fruit and stevia and a thyrotol. And so I think people just assume that those are, you get like a free pass on those. And I always have to remind people that it's still, you know, a sugar like substance. So what are your feelings? What are the things that you, when, when you're confronted with these kinds of questions, you know, what is your standard response? Well, yeah, we get, this is probably, wouldn't you say, Emily, our number one question? Yeah. Okay, our stance on the sweeteners, the alternative sweeteners, like you mentioned, is we do not advise them. Okay. We don't think there's enough research, certainly not in children, certainly not in the long-term effects. And just because something is grass-approved does not mean to say we know what the long-term effects are of that chemical, in some cases, some synthetic chemical that's put in food. So, and, it, and what's more, they, they have different effects than sugar mm-hmm. that might introduce a whole separate set of problems, like they activate sweet t- taste receptors throughout the body. 
They affect the gut microbiome, and we can't talk about them as one class of compounds. They're all very different. And I was talking to somebody the other day who was using mannitol, mm-hmm. which is a sugar alcohol. And I, mm-hmm. like, why do you use mannitol? It's half as sweet as sugar. So it's not even sweeter than sugar. Many of these compounds can be thousands of times mm-hmm. sweeter, but mannitol in many people has a lot, can cause a lot of GI problems. So we just do not recommend them. Uh, we do not use them. Uh, we prefer, and I'll let Emily talk a bit more about this, our sweetener of choices using whole foods, mm-hmm. whether that's uh, blending dates or bananas or other dried fruits into cooking. That's kind of what we use in all the recipes. However, you know, my kids bake, we bake in this house, and we do have sugar in the house, and everybody likes to bake, and that's fine. And we're not saying, never bake a birthday cake again for your kids. You know, that's not what we're saying. We're saying, in that case, just use less. So if you're going to make a sweet treat, yeah, enjoy it. I don't even like the taste of monk food or stevia. So if I'm going to make a cake or a plate of brownies or some cookies, I'd rather not contaminate taste. I'd rather just make them taste good so I can enjoy it to its full capacity. But I think you can do that with less sugar and still enjoy it. Um, But Emily may want to add to that because this is something we talk a lot about. Yeah, I think that was a great summary of it, Michael. And, you know, there's definitely, you know, putting dates or banana in a recipe, you know, that does add sugar, Mm -hmm. but the sugar is coming along with fiber and other Mm -hmm. nutrients. And so we prefer using that approach for our sugar-proof recipes. And and natural taste, natural sweetness, natural taste. Flavors as well. Yeah, so all of our recipes are balanced. And then the other thing that you can do in your baking is add protein and add other sources of fiber and healthy fats so that the overall glycemic index of what you're making and the overall nutrient quality is higher. So, for example, our blueberry banana muffins, they're sweetened entirely with ripe bananas, and we use almond flour as the main flour. There's also a substitution that you can make if you prefer coconut flour, but those are both flours that have more nutrient value than plain white flour. And And it doesn't have to be all almond or coconut flour. When we talk about, you know, you can use a mixture, so almond flour is more expensive, obviously. It doesn't mean to say you have to use it entirely, but even if you're Using a little substitution of those higher quality flowers, it's going to give you some benefit. True. Yeah, so there's lots of ways that you can adjust recipes to make them something that will still be a nice treat, but not leave you feeling bad after you eat it. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for carving time out of your busy schedules. How can we connect with you? How can my listeners find you on social media? What's the easiest way to do that? Sure. Well, on Instagram, you can find us at, at Sugarproof Kids. Same for Facebook, at Sugarproof Kids. We have a website, sugarproofkids.com. I'm on Twitter, which is at Michael Gorin. And check out the book. You can check it out on the website. You can get a free download of one of the chapters. You can you can't get to the bookstore these days, so we try to put as much on the website as we can so you can close your eyes and think you're at the web at the bookstore. You can browse into it on, on the website. Well, I'm certainly enjoying 
getting through the book. I just got my book proposal off to my lit agent. I'm crossing my fingers. This is the proposal they're going to they're going to select and move forward with. So congratulations. Now I have a bit more time to dive into it, but what I've read thus far has really been impressive, and I think it'll be a really valuable resource for families and certainly for parents to become better educated. Thank you so much. Really lovely to talk with you today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.